Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And if you're a fan of Canadian History X, make sure you check out my other shows, From John to Justin and Canada, A Yearly Journey. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. It helps keep this show going. All right, on with the show. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. On October 12, 2012, a film directed by Ben Affleck, based on the book The Master of Disguise by Antonio Mendez, was released in North America, telling the story of how six Americans escaped Iran in 1979. The critically acclaimed film, however, downplays the role Canadians had in the rescue. I can assure you, this was far from the truth. So today, I share the real story of Argo, also known as the Canadian Caper. I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X. To tell this story, for the next few minutes, we will have to be Iranian History X. Beginning in 1789 and for nearly 150 years after, Iran was known as the Sublime State of Iran or the Qajar Iran. Ruled by a Shah during the 19th century, the country maintained political independence for the most part as European colonial powers planted flags throughout the Middle East. When the First World War began, the Ottoman Empire invaded Iran and for the next four years, massacred thousands of civilians and portions of the country were occupied by the Russian and British Empire. In 1921, Reza Khan, the commander of the Persian Cossack Brigade, staged a coup and became a ruler of Iran, ending the Qajar rule of the country. He was the Shah of Iran until 1941 when the Soviet Union invaded and he was forced to abdicate. In the 1940s, he was replaced by a new Shah, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, his 22-year-old son. Unlike his father, this new Shah was a mild leader and did not take much of an active role in the government. Throughout the Second World War, Iran was a conduit for British and American aid to the Soviet Union. In 1943, at the Tehran Conference, the United States, Britain, and the Soviet Union issued the Tehran Declaration to guarantee Iranian independence following the war. After the war, Iran continued as it always had, but as the 1950s dawned, things were about to change. In 1949, there was an assassination attempt on the Shah, which led him to become more involved in Iranian politics. He established the Senate of Iran, but he had the right to choose half the senators. He also organized the Iran Constituent Assembly to consolidate his own power as members were appointed by him. And due to these changes, an opposition called the National Front formed in Iran's parliament and gained most of the seats in the 1951 election. Mohammad Mossadegh was appointed as prime minister, and Mossadegh and the Shah did not get along. Mossadegh was a direct descendant of the former Qajar rulers of Iran, and he saw the Shah as an usurper to the throne. As Prime Minister, Mossadegh nationalized the oil industry, a move that was incredibly popular among Iranians. 
It was less popular with the United Kingdom, as Iran could now demand more money for the export of oil. Britain responded by banning commodities such as sugar and steel from being imported into Iran. The Royal Navy was then used to embargo Iranian oil tankers from carrying oil property outside of Iran, which they considered stolen. Iran's hard currency was also frozen in British banks. The embargo hurt Mossadegh's popularity and a second assassination attempt in 1952 led him to use emergency powers to stay in government. Eventually, as the support in Parliament collapsed, a referendum was held to dissolve Parliament and give him total control. You know, standard dictator stuff. The referendum went to voters and passed with 99.9% approval with 2 million votes in favour and only 1,300 votes against. And it was seen not only as dripping with corruption, but also an act of treason. Mossadegh had stripped the Shah of control over Iran's national resources and all military power. And as the Prime Minister consolidated power and the Shah lost most of his, the CIA entered the chat. The CIA proposed a coup to remove Mossadegh from power. Now initially the Shah was against it, but changed his mind when he was told by the CIA that if he didn't go along with a coup, he too would be deposed and sent packing. And so Operation Ajax was initiated. It hoped to remove Mossadegh from power while backing the Shah as it removed oil nationalization by bringing in five American oil companies to extract Iranian oil. The coup helped the stagnating economy of Iran, but it also made the Shah autocratic. While the US supported the campaign towards modernization in Iran, the Shah cemented himself as a dictator. Random arrests and torture by a secret police helped remove most of his political opposition. And the United States didn't have any issue with it. Their policy can be best summed up as, Mossadegh is a dictator that nationalized Iran's oil? Bad. The Shah is a dictator that allowed American oil companies to profit off Iran's oil? Good. Within this new environment, a Muslim cleric named Khomeini became the Shah's most vocal critic as he publicly denounced the government in the early 1960s and spent 18 months in prison as a result. After his release, he was exiled. The Shah would have likely have held power until his death. But things were about to change in the 1970s. In 1973, oil prices spiked due to the oil embargo by Saudi Arabia that targeted Western countries who supported Israel during the Yom Kippur War. As oil prices skyrocketed, foreign currency flooded Iran as international actors looked to purchase its oil reserves, which caused inflation to rise. By 1974, the country had double-digit inflation rates and corruption became rampant. An economic recession followed in 1975 and 1976, which only increased the unemployment rate. Millions of Iranians looked for jobs, but whatever had been available just a few years earlier had dried up. High inflation, high unemployment, and high corruption created opposition to the Shah's rule. As the Shah became more unpopular, Iranians rallied around the exiled Khomeini, as supporters smuggled in tapes to Iran of his speeches, disguised as music recordings from Asia. In response, the Shah put out news reports stating Khomeini was the homosexual son of a cabaret dancer. Stories in newspapers said he was born in India and was under the pay of the British government. In January 1978, the first major demonstrations against the Shah began. Strikes and demonstrations brought the country to a standstill as a popular revolution began to gather speed and snowball. The Shah cracked down harshly on protesters, but this only galvanized the movement against him. And by late 1978, the Shah knew his time in power was short. 
On January 16, 1979, he filled a small wooden casket with a few ounces of his native soil and issued his final order as Shaw, which was to fuel his Boeing 727. The foreign press was then called to a press conference at the palace. As they waited, the Shah boarded his plane and left Iran. Two weeks later, on February 1st, Khomeini returned to Iran and formed a new government. A referendum was held in April 1979, and Iran became an Islamic Republic. Khomeini became the Ayatollah, or Supreme Leader of Iran, and Ayatollah Khomeini quickly eliminated thousands of dissenters to his new system of government. And while Khomeini had promised a democratic political system, he immediately advocated for the creation of a theocracy, as opposition parties were banned and foreign powers in Iran were looked on with suspicion. And the harshest rhetoric was levied at the American embassy, which he called a den of spies. With this political climate in mind, the stage was now set for what became known as the Canadian Caper. The man instrumental to the Caper was born on October 5, 1934 in Calgary. His name was Ken Taylor. Ken Taylor then attended the University of Toronto where he earned a Bachelor of Arts, followed by a Master of Business Administration at Berkeley in California. In 1959, he joined the Foreign Service and had a long string of international postings, first in Guatemala, where he arrived on a freighter, completely broke with his wife Pat after being delayed at a Mexico dock for five weeks. From this low point, his career could only go up. After that posting, he was sent to Pakistan and then the United Kingdom until he found himself as the Canadian ambassador to Iran in 1977. And if he thought this would be a quiet posting, he would be very wrong. As we just learned, the Iranian Revolution would soon upend everything in the country. Following the Iranian Revolution, Taylor and his office helped 850 Canadian workers leave the country. The embassy staff remained behind and provided information back to Canada about the evolving situation. On November 4, 1979, hundreds of students protested outside the American Embassy in Tehran over the decision by the United States to allow the former Shah to go to New York City for cancer treatment. The mob of students began to scale the fence of the embassy, eventually taking 66 Americans hostage. They demanded the extradition of the Shah to Iran and had the support of Ayatollah Khomeini. In a separate building on the embassy grounds, a group of Americans were working. And upon seeing the students storm the embassy, the group fled the grounds through another entrance. Outside the embassy, the Americans split into two groups to avoid suspicion and decide to meet later at the nearby British embassy. One group, led by Consul General Richard Moorfield, took an indirect route and were captured and returned to the American embassy as hostages. Led by diplomat Robert Anders, the other group consisted of Cora Amber Lejek, Mark Lejek, Joseph Stafford, and Kathleen Stafford. This group was on their way to the British Embassy when they saw a huge crowd in their path. And since Robert Anders lived nearby, he took the group to his home. Then there was Lee Schatz, who was an American diplomat who simply walked out of the embassy, through the crowd, and into the Swedish Embassy after making a stop at his apartment to grab a few things. The six Americans evaded capture for the next few days as they hopped from house to house until they realized the unsafe conditions were untenable. That's when Anders contacted his friend, John Sheardown, who was a Canadian immigration officer on November 8th. Sheardown stated he would be happy to help keep the Americans safe, but he needed authorization to do so, and he asked Anders to call him back in two days. Sheardown shared the information with the Canadian ambassador, Kenneth Taylor, who contacted Flora MacDonald, the Federal Secretary of External Affairs in Canada, and set the wheels in motion for what was to come. 
She gave her authorization to help the Americans, but she also needed the approval of Prime Minister Joe Clark. At the time of the phone call, Clark was involved in question period in the House of Commons. He said later, My Foreign Minister, Flora MacDonald, literally came up to me on the floor of the House of Commons, told me what was happening, and the two of us decided on the spot that we would accept the Ambassador's recommendation and extend protection to the hostages. On November 10th, Anders called Sheardown, who offered the American sanctuary. Anders and his group then arrived at John and Zira Sheardown's home, and when they walked in, they were greeted by Ken Taylor. After the introductions were completed, the Americans that showed up at the home were split up. Joseph and Kathleen Stafford went with Ken and Pat Taylor, while Anders, Cora Amber Lejek, and Mark Lejek stayed with the Sheardowns. The first week was slow. Reports about what was happening with the American hostages only came from newspapers that were under the firm control of the government. On November 21st, Swedish ambassador Kaj Sundberg called Taylor and told him that Lee Schatz was under their protection. He'd been staying in the home of Swedish consul Cecilia Lithander. The Swedes were happy to shelter him, but he didn't speak their language and that could blow his cover as a member of their group, and they felt he would impersonate a Canadian better. Taylor told Sundberg that they would be happy to house another American as they were already housing five. Sundberg was reportedly shocked to learn that there were other Americans who had escaped the embassy. Schatz soon found himself transported to the Sheardown residence. Meanwhile, American diplomats and citizens were being held hostage by the Iranian regime. For the six that escaped though, they settled into a day-to-day -day routine of sitting and waiting. Their hope was they would be out of Iran by Christmas, but that was not going to happen. Back in Canada and the House of Commons, the Liberals and Pierre Trudeau were hammering Clark regarding the hostage situation in Iran and the Americans who were captured. They were unaware of the sheltered Americans. The heated debate had resulted in some near slip-ups. At one point during a debate, both Flora MacDonald and Joe Clark nearly let everyone in on their major secret. Flora MacDonald would call that time as living under the gallows. To prevent the seeker from getting out, Clark told Trudeau about the Americans in hiding on October 27th in the hope of calming the debate in Parliament and lowering the risk of the story accidentally coming out during question period. He told Trudeau, We have given sanctuary to six Americans in Tehran. They are members of the diplomatic staff and they would otherwise be hostages, but they managed to get away and make contact with us. Clark stressed to Trudeau that he did not want him to cease questioning. He stated, I would just like to have your questions conditional on this information. Clark said later that Trudeau thanked him and that was his only reaction to the information. Trudeau continued his questioning over the hostage crisis in America and Canada's response to it but changed his course somewhat. In Iran, days soon turned to weeks and the calendar flipped from 1979 to 1980. And over the course of this time, Taylor slowly began to reduce his staff to eliminate the risk of exposure. On November 10th, 1979, he had 17 staff, but by January 18th, 1980, they'd been reduced to 11. And through this time, he was also in contact with Washington, providing information about the situation in Iran. He even scouted out helicopter landing spots in Tehran in case a rescue was needed. But by January, the need for escape was increasing due to the risk of the story about the Americans getting out. At one point, a report from Taylor was accidentally labeled secret rather than top secret, it was included in a summary to senior department heads in Ottawa. Thankfully, the story did not get out. There were rumors that a reporter in Washington was sniffing out the story as well, and there was a concern it could break and put both Americans and Canadians in Iran in danger. Realizing things needed to move, a plan was hatched to smuggle the Americans out of Iran. 
and you may be familiar with some of the plot points in the next part of this story. To smuggle the escapees out of the country, passports were needed. American passports obviously wouldn't do, so Canadian passports had to be issued. For obvious reasons, these passports can only be issued to Canadian citizens, so an order in council was needed. An order in council is rarely used by our government, but it's a decision made by the federal cabinet that does not need to be approved by parliament. With the risk involved in this case, it was absolutely required. In the cabinet meeting, only four people, Joe Clark, Flora MacDonald, Minister of National Defense Alan McKinnon, and Senator Marshall Asselin, knew the real reason for the passports. Clark simply told everyone there was a very good reason for the passports without going into further detail, and the order in council was approved, and the passports were issued with fake names. The next task was developing a cover story courtesy of the CIA. Their involvement would not be known until 1997 when it was declassified. While various cover stories were suggested, the selected surrounded Canadians working on a Hollywood crew scouting locations for a new science fiction movie. The science fantasy novel Lord of Light, written by Roger Zelansky, was released in 1967. It's set on a planet colonized by the remnants of humanity. The novel covers a great deal of span of time as the humans carve out a place for themselves on their new planet. In 1979, it was announced that Lord of Light would be made into a $50 million film called Argo. Comic book artist Jack Kirby, the creator of several comic book characters including Captain America, was brought on to produce artwork for the set design, and the planet was supposed to resemble the Middle East. But due to legal problems, including embezzlement, the film was never produced, but that pitch and some of the pre-production still existed, and that proved to be very beneficial to the American escapees. The film script and even the set designs by Kirby were acquired by the CIA for use in the Canadian caper. It was believed the film was the perfect reason to scout locations in Iran. To build the cover story, Tony Mendez, a disguise and exfiltration expert for the CIA, was brought in to provide documents, clothing, materials, and a cover story. Mendez had answered a blind advertisement in 1965 for a graphic artist. He was hired and was soon working as an espionage artist for the Technical Services Division of the CIA where he specialized in document forgery and the creation of disguises. Working closely with the Canadian government, Mendez was given the passports and other supporting materials. He then flew to Tehran with Ed Johnson, another member of the Technical Services Division, who would assist in the rescue. To make the cover story work, John Chambers was hired by Mendez. Chambers was well known in Hollywood for his groundbreaking makeup artistry. He created the iconic pointed Spock ears on Star Trek and created the prosthetics for the ape characters in Planet of the Apes, for which he won an Academy Award in 1968. And due to his skill, he was used by the CIA to create disguise kits for CIA agents throughout the world. With his connections in Hollywood and his work with the CIA, Chambers was the perfect person to assist Mendez, the Canadians, and the CIA. Chambers set up a fake movie and production company called Studio 6 Productions. The name was a reference to the six Americans hiding in Iran. An office was rented in Los Angeles, fake business cards were made, and ads for the studio's upcoming film, Argo, were taken out in various magazines like Variety and Hollywood Reporter. Taking the cover story even further, a film press party was held at a nightclub in Los Angeles. Robert Seidel, another makeup artist in Hollywood, was enlisted by Chambers to pose as a producer at the film events in Los Angeles. Robert's wife Joan was hired to serve as the receptionist of Studio 6 offices in case anyone called to check the backstory of the film crew. But back in Iran, the Americans, they waited. They read, played games such as Scrabble, and passed the time however they could. 
Taylor spent his time getting non-essential Canadian embassy personnel out of the country to establish erratic patterns in case they were followed and to figure out airport procedures. Taylor also sent people out on fake errands in Tehran. Each of the Americans also rehearsed their own roles in the cover story. Korolajak became the film's writer while Mark was the transportation coordinator. Kathy Stafford took on the role of set designer and, and Joe Stafford was an associate producer. Robert Anders was the director of the film while Lee Schatz was the film's cameraman. And everything was moving smoothly, but tensions were high in the house as everyone worried about being discovered. On January 19, 1980, someone called Ken Taylor's home. Patricia Taylor answered and the person on the other line stated he wanted to speak to the house guests and demanded to speak with the Staffords. Not knowing who she was talking to, she denied the Staffords were there and hung up. But back in North America, another man was starting to figure out the story. Jean Pelletier was the Washington correspondent for the Montreal newspaper La Presse. He first began to suspect something was up when the Americans in press conferences referred to different numbers of hostages held by the Iranians after the embassy was stormed. He wrote in his book, The Canadian Caper. It started with the numbers. They weren't right. They didn't compute, fit together. 90, 75, 43, 13, 50. So many soldiers out of step. He quickly concluded that some had escaped. The only way the Americans could still be in Iran was if they were being housed by another country. And the logical conclusion for Pelletier was that the Canadians were involved. He said, The Canadians were involved in some kind of sanctuary set up in Tehran, and they were skittery as barnyard cattle before an earthquake. From here, he began to build his story through old-fashioned journalism. He kept his notes hidden in a filing cabinet in a folder labeled Fisheries. Once he had completed the story, Pelletier had a choice to make. He could hold the story and risk someone else breaking it or wait until the operation was complete. Pelletier's managing editor at La Presse wanted to run the story. We are not in the business of covering up news. We don't keep information to ourselves. We don't make a practice of working hand-in-hand with governments. We are in the information business. Pelletier, despite having a career-making story on his hands, refused to allow a story to be published due to the risk of the Americans and Canadians in Iran. We would only be playing into the hands of the militants. Is there anything they'd enjoy more now than to expose yet another nest of spies? No, I won't be a part of that. If the story of the Canadian caper had been broken by someone else, it's possible it would not have had a happy ending. With all this in mind, the Canadian caper was on. Early in the morning on January 27, 1980, Mendez, Johnson, and the six Americans left their homes of their Canadian hosts. They made their way to Tehran's international airport with their forged entry documents and real Canadian passports. The worry of discovery as they moved through security and customs was real, but everything went off without a hitch. The Americans made it to their aircraft, Swiss Air Flight 363, and left Iran for Zurich, Switzerland. And in an amazing coincidence, the aircraft was called Argo, named for a state in Switzerland. Upon arrival in Switzerland, the Americans were taken by the CIA to a mountain lodge safe house for the night. The same day the Americans left Iran, the Canadians closed their embassy. Taylor sent one last message to Canada from the embassy which stated, quote, This is the last message from Fortress Iran. See you later, exfiltrator. He then smashed the embassy's coding and communication equipment. Soon after, he and the remaining Canadians in Iran left the country. Initially, the plan was for the Americans to be kept hidden in a secret location in Florida, but the day after the escape, Pelletier broke his story in La Presse. 
The story was immediately picked up by the international press and spread around the world. With their plans changed, the Americans were taken to West Germany and then flown to Delaware on January 30, 1980. Kathleen Stafford said, It felt so great to be out and safe from harm. Back in North America, the escape of the six Americans came as a complete surprise. Beyond a handful of people, no one else knew Candace's help in keeping the Americans safe in Iran, and the outpouring of gratitude was immense. In Detroit, billboards were put up facing the northern border with Thank You Canada written on them. The Canadian Embassy in Washington was overwhelmed with people calling to say thank you. The biggest outpouring of gratitude, though, was directed at Ken Taylor. On his way home to Canada, he was offered the key to New York City. He was called the hero of the entire rescue. Newspapers began to call him the Scarlet Pimpernel, referencing the literal character of Sir Percy Blakeney, created in 1905. In those books, Blakeney leads a double life as a wealthy playboy who is also a formidable swordsman and master of disguise. He became a basis for superhero stories such as Batman, Superman, and Zorro. Back in Canada, the Canadians who helped orchestrate the rescue were honoured almost immediately. Ken and Patricia Taylor, John and Zira Sheardown, and Embassy staff Mary Catherine O'Flaherty, Roger Lucy, and Laverna Dullamore were all awarded the Order of Canada for their work. Zira Sheardown was born outside of Canada and therefore not eligible for the award, but Floor MacDonald made an exception and she was presented with an honorary membership to the Order. Taylor was also awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor in 1981 by President Ronald Reagan. This award is the highest civilian award in the United States. He also received the Golden Plate Award from the American Academy of Achievement. Appointed as the Consul General to New York City after his return from Iran, Taylor left the Foreign Service in 1984. He remained in New York City until his death on October 15, 2015 from colon cancer. But he lived long enough to see his heroics heavily downplayed by Ben Affleck in the film Argo. In the film, Ken Taylor is shown not as the man who jumped immediately into action to protect the Americans, but as an ambassador who ordered the Canadian Embassy closed. At one point, the Canadians are even shown considering abandoning the Americans. As you now know, neither is true. A title card was displayed at the end of Argo stating the CIA gave Canadian Ken Taylor credit simply for political purposes. This, suffice to say, was a complete rewriting of history, and due to the backlash, Ben Affleck changed the postscript text to say, Quote, the involvement of the CIA complemented efforts of the Canadian Embassy to free the six held in Tehran. To this day, the story stands as an enduring model of international cooperation between governments. As the Toronto Star wrote, quote, even that hardly does Canada justice. Former U.S. President Jimmy Carter said, 90% of the contributions to the ideas and the consummation of the plan was Canadian, and the movie gives almost full credit to the American CIA the main hero, in my opinion, was Ken Taylor. Taylor himself stated, Canada was responsible for the six and the CIA was a junior partner, but I realize that this is a movie and you have to keep the audience on the edge of their seats. Affleck's response to all of this was that the film was based on a true story and stated that the film had the spirit of truth. That's one way of putting it. Another way is to say it rewrote history to make other people look like heroes at the expense of the reputation of the diplomats that risked it all in the Canadian caper. But hey, that's just my opinion, and the opinion of Ken Taylor, alongside Sir John Graham, who was Britain's ambassador to Iran at the time, who was denied the US diplomats were turned away from Britain's embassy as shown in the movie. Not only that, the hero of the movie was CIA fixer Tony Mendez, played by Ben Affleck. 
According to Richard Sewell's diary, a Kiwi diplomat, New Zealand's ambassador Chris Beebe was closely involved with the ambitious plot to fly the US diplomats to safety. The diary even hints that Mendez nearly ruined the Canadian caper on the day the Americans were to be flown out of Iran because when he went to pick up Mendez from his hotel, he was still asleep and had to be awoken with a phone call. The pair eventually arrived 30 minutes late for their flight and Mendez allegedly pleaded, for God's sake, don't mention this to anyone. Regardless, the Canadian caper saved six people from the fate faced by all other U.S. Embassy employees who were held hostage for 444 days, from November 4, 1979, to their eventual release on January 20, 1981, almost a year after those kept safe by Ken Taylor and the Canadian Embassy in Tehran. I hope you enjoyed that episode and our look at the Canadian caper. Next week, we're looking at the Manitoba Schools question. Information from the Canadian Caper, the Canadian Museum of History, the Government of Canada, Maclean's, Wilson Centre, Wikipedia, and the Canadian Encyclopedia. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of Dila Velasquez. Audio production and design by Rosalind Kufour. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com, or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.